chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, uh, we see that Jesus, you know, again, the book of Revelation, some people, they have, again, you, you talk about Revelation or you bring it up and some of the stories in it or some of the, 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 the verses in it, and everyone thinks about just this doomsday type of, man, end of the world. You know, and, and yeah, though it does mention events that are going to happen at the end, uh, it's more than that, right? The, the book Revelation... Uh, the, the word revelation actually in the Greek in the Greek language is again uh, uh, apocalypse, which means the revealing. And the aim of the book of Revelation is uh, for Jesus to be revealed, right? Jesus is revealing himself to, to the apostle John. And as we read, we read through the book of Revelation, you know, the, the intent is that we would know more of Jesus, that he would be revealed to us in a deeper way as we go through the book of Revelation. And so we see that in the, we're in the beginning chapters and in chapter 2 to 3. Jesus has been addressing uh, seven churches there in Asia Minor. We've covered uh, five of them already, and we're going to cover the last two this morning. And we see that, that, that again, uh, just to recap, there's more than seven churches in Asia Minor. But, but the Lord directed his message towards these seven specifically, right? And the whole aim of it is that the idea behind it is that as we read these, these messages to the seven churches, it would apply to us today. Man, some 2,000 years after this was written, right? We could read some of this stuff and still apply it to our, our life today. And so this morning, we're going to pick it up in chapter 3, verse 7. And uh, that's where we left off last week. And uh, we're going to see Jesus address now to the church there in the city of Philadelphia. And so Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 starts off by saying this. He says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, and says, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And verse 8 says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Let's stop right there. And so again, as the Lord is, is directing His message towards these seven churches, each one of these seven churches is in, is in different cities there in Asia Minor. Right? And so we see that He has a, a specific message to these churches, uh, messages uh, that, that would apply to their uh, current situation, and, and also that would apply to, to us as we read it this morning. And so just a little background on this city of Philadelphia. Uh, so Philadelphia, the, the word Philadelphia actually is made up of two words. You know, one word being uh, phileo, which is the Greek word for, for brotherly love, right? If you didn't know, the, the, the Greek language has four words for the word love. You know, it's much, it's much more in-depth than, than our English, English language. Um, English is actually like the most basic language that there is out there, right? It's nothing sophisticated like Spanish or Italian or Portuguese or, you know, Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew. It's like, man, our, our English language is like the most basic. Uh, I could say... In, I love my wife, I love pizza, I love my cat, and I love my city, and, but yet I don't love my wife to the same degree, I don't love my city to the same degree that I love my wife, I don't love pizza to the same degree that I love, you know, this, that, the other, but I only have one word to express this love that I have, right? But in the Greek it's different, because they have four different words to express four different types of love. One of them being agape, that agape love, uh, which describes the, 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 the love of God, right? And uh, another word being uh, this word, phileo, which describes a brotherly type of love. That's why if you heard of the city of Philadelphia, you know, they call it the city of brotherly love. because That's what phileo means. It's a brotherly type of love. You have another word for the, for the word love, which is uh, eros, which, which describes uh, an erotic type of love. You know, it's mostly associated with, you know, like uh, sexual things. And then there's another word for, for love, which is the, the storge, which is a familiar type of love, right? A, 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 a love within family. And so this city is, is, is made up of two words, you know, this phileo, 
right? So that's one of the words which means the brotherly love. And so Philadelphia means, you know, this, this, this brotherly love. It is the seventh and the last occurrence of this word in the New Testament. So we see this word Philadelphia in other places here in the New Testament. Because you remember that the New Testament is written in Greek. And so we see this word Philadelphia and other, and other books of the New Testament. But not as Philadelphia. We see it as literally brotherly love. For example, there in the book of Romans, uh, Romans 12.10, Paul, he's, he's writing to a church at Rome, and he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In the Greek, when it says that brotherly love, it's actually the word Philadelphia. Uh, so it says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with Philadelphia, with brotherly love. It says, In honor, giving preference to one another. And so we see that the, we know that, that the city of Philadelphia was, was founded uh, sometime after 189 B.C. We don't know for sure exactly when it, was, when it was built, but it was founded sometime after 189 B.C., which would make it, out of these seven cities that, that, that we're reading about, uh, it would be like the, the newest one, right? All the other ones were, were, were around way before 189 B.C. Philadelphia would be like the, the, the youngest one of the cities, right? The, 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 the most recent one that was built. Uh, it actually became a strong and, and wealthy trade center. Um, it is the second of the of the seven churches which the Lord had nothing bad to say about, right? As we read through these seven churches in chapter two and three, uh, we see that that five of those churches uh, the Lord had man He had some correction for them, He had some rebuke for them because they were messing up, they were doing things that that they shouldn't be doing, right? And so He had to correct them. But two out of the, out of those seven churches, man, the Lord had nothing bad to say about them. He only encouraged them, He only exhorted them, and this is one of them. We know also that that. Uh, this church was kind of like the model church, right? We, as Christians, we could read about these churches and it's like everyone wants to be like this church in Philadelphia because they were just, dude, they were strong. You know, they were strong. They were persevering. They were doing good. The Lord had nothing bad to say about them. You know, it, they were just a model church, right? It's like the typical, you know, what you see on TV or what you imagine as, as just a perfect church. That was in Philadelphia. And so he writes to them and, he, and he, he, addresses, he addresses them and he describes himself as he says, the one who is holy the one who is true. And so this is important because we see that, that Jesus is reminding the church that in the midst of corruption, which there was a lot of corruption at that time in that city, in the midst of corruption, he is holy. Right? In the midst of all kinds of false and, and fake beliefs that were circulating around, says he was true. Interesting that the, that the city of Philadelphia was also uh, known as the Little Athens. You know, you know uh, uh, historically, Athens was a huge uh, Greek city, right? It was like, they would call it like the home of the, of, of the Olympic gods, right? Zeus and all these, and, and all these other gods would, you know, would so-called, you know, dwell there in Athens. It was like the center for all this, you know, Greek, uh, uh, Greek god worship. And so uh, Philadelphia was known as the Little Athens. Because even, even though it was smaller, even though it was newer, um, it was also known for, for its many temples dedicated to the Olympian gods, these false gods. And so a Christian in, in, in the city of Philadelphia could walk around the city of Philadelphia and, and, and they would be surrounded and they would encounter numerous statues and buildings dedicated to these false gods. And so for someone who was, who was in the city of Philadelphia and, and was really genuinely seeking God, the one true God, I mean, they would have all these questions come up like, man, which one is true? Right? You see all these statues of Zeus and, and Jupiter and Saturn and all these other you know, Greek, uh, 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 Greek mythological gods. And you see all these temples and you would think, man, for someone who's really searching and wanting to know God, they'd be like, man, what's the truth? What's the real God? Who's the real God? Where's the truth? Where should I go? What church should I go to? What God should I worship? Right? And so the Lord addresses the church and he says, hey, this, these things says the one who is holy and the one who is true. So for the one seeking truth, he will know, hey, man, I'm the truth. The Lord is saying, right? 
Now we know that there can only be one truth. And that's not just talking about God, not about Christianity, but I mean, in society, <laughs> relatively, there can only be one truth, right? Truth is not subjective. Truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. Now, we live in a society today where, where they're, they're, teaching, uh, they're, they're teaching in the schools, they're teaching in, even in, in universities that, that, that truth is subjective, right? That, that, that truth is, is relative, that, you know, you can have your own truth and you can have your own truth. I can have my own truth and we're all right, right? And, and, and there is no absolute truth. And, and there's this fight for, for truth nowadays, right? Because there's so much, I mean, uh, fake things, there's so much false things, there's so much misinformation, there's so many thoughts out there, so many ideas, so many uh, beliefs out there. And it's like, there's this war for truth out there, you know? And you don't know what to believe, you don't know what's real and what's not, right? And it's like, there's, there's this battle for information, this battle for truth that's out there. And for somebody who's really just seeking to know the truth, I mean, <laughs> you could easily get carried, carried away by these hundreds of, of false ideas, false beliefs and it's easy to just sit there and be like man what is truth right but we see that the bible teaches us that that, that there is one truth and we know that 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 in that in the world today there is one truth truth is absolute it's not subjective it's not relative you know we you can all have your own uh personal ideas of what truth is and and, and i'll be right there's only one truth now uh, i love what the lord says there in there in the in, in the gospel of john now well we, we have an instance you know of when when jesus if you remember when he was uh, being uh, tried and right before he got crucified, that, that that last week of his life, right before he got crucified, actually the day before, right? He they they they, they arrest him falsely, they accuse him falsely, they beat him up, you know, with with, with no uh, with with no reason to, and then they take him before the, the Roman governor Pilate, and Pilate begins to question him, you know, he's uh, he's he's giving him all these questions. He wants to know why they why why the, the people want to kill him so badly. What did he do wrong, right? And, and as Pilate is questioning him, as he's examining him. You know, Jesus says, Jesus says to him, you know, he says, I come to, 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 to bear truth. And then Pilate says this in John 18, 38. It says, Pilate said to him, what is truth? Right. And when he had said this, he went out against again to the Jews. And he said to them, I find no fault in this man at all. And so he, he man, Pilate's question, you know, it reigns true today. And it's, it's, a, it's a question that's been that's been uh, asked for for centuries, forever since the beginning of time. Right. What is truth? Right? And it's something that we ask ourselves this day today, man, what is truth? Jesus said to him, hey, I am the truth. And Paul said, hey, what is truth? Right? And so we see that again, that there's this, this battle for truth nowadays. Now, for us as believers, for us as Christians, when Satan clouds our minds with, with lies about ourselves, you know, when, he, when, he, when Satan comes into your minds, into your thoughts, and, and tells you lies about yourself, about God, about the world, you know, what we need to do is cling to the truth. You know, cling to what is true. And so you may ask yourself, man, well, what is truth? Right? Well, Jesus said this in John 17, 17, as he's uh, praying for all believers, as he's praying for his disciples. He, there in chapter 17, you know, we have the prayer of Jesus. And as he's praying, he, he tells the Father, he says, Lord, I pray for these whom you've given me and for all those who are going to believe in, in me after them, meaning us too. And so I was going to think that, that Jesus was praying for you and me, uh, man, way, way before we even, even knew him. Right? And he says this in John 17, 17. He says, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. He says, your word is truth. And so on this topic of truth, Jesus said, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. It means sanctify the believers by your truth. That word sanctify means to set apart. And so in a, in a world of lies, in a world of false claims, in a world of just all kinds of uh, uh, information out there, false, false, false claims of fake, fake things, right? Untruths. He says, Lord, set them apart from all this by your truth, your truth. And he says, your word is truth. Talking about the scriptures, the Bible, right? This, this what we have in front of us is truth. It's, 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 it's never changing. 
Like I mentioned in the beginning, hey, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means ever pass away. Right? It's the only, God's word is, is never changing. It's, it's, it's true. It's been reigning true. It's, it's never going to change. Right? And so this is the truth. God's word is truth. And so Jesus continues to, to address them, right? And he says, uh, these things says, he who has the key of David, talking about King David, and says, who opens and no one closes, who closes and no one opens. And so Jesus is, is again, we know that he is a descendant of King David, right? He is the, the one who the Bible prophesied to be the Messiah, to be the deliverer. He had to come from the lineage of King David. And so, and so Jesus, as he's addressing himself to this church, as he's sort of like kind of introducing himself to this church, he says, this, these things says he who has the key of David, right? Who opens doors, doors who no one closes, who closes doors who no one can open, right? And so what he's saying, he's actually quoting uh, from an Old Testament passage there in Isaiah 22, 22. The prophet Isaiah, man, a couple hundred years before Jesus was even born, right? He prophesied about the Messiah. And he says this about him. He says, uh, the key of the house of David, meaning authority, right? The authority to, to the kingdom. He says, the, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. All right, and so this is a prophecy given about the Messiah years before Jesus was ever born. And he's talking about the authority that he would have, you know, as, 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 a, as a descendant of King David, right? Uh, the authority that he, that he would have and the, and the, and the position, the, the, right, the rightful claim that he would have to the throne. But just in this, in this you know, we see the importance of studying the Old Testament because we wouldn't have this correlation. We wouldn't have this comparison, you know, to the Old Testament. We wouldn't be able to, to know what Jesus is talking about here if we didn't study the Old Testament and we didn't read the Old Testament, right? And, and nowadays, man, even within the church and even within Christianity, you know, there's uh, preachers, man, who are falsely and heretically claiming that, hey, the Old Testament is, is not for us today, right? We shouldn't read it. We shouldn't bother with it. We shouldn't study it. We shouldn't know it. That was for, you know, that was before the New Testament. That was before Jesus died on the cross. It has nothing to do with us. You know, we shouldn't even dig into it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's unrelatable. It's irrelevant. But we see that, no, that's not true, right? We, we know that, that, that all of God's word right, is, is profitable for us. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. He says, hey, and, it's, and it's profitable for us for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness. And he says, so that the man of God may be complete, for, uh, thoroughly equipped, lacking nothing. And so we see the importance of studying the Old Testament. I mean, just, in the, just in the book of Revelation, uh, we wouldn't be able to, 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 to understand the book of Revelation, this New Testament book, without understanding the Old Testament. There's... Uh, probably more than 50% of the, of the book of Revelation, you know, makes reference to some Old Testament claim. And so in that we see just the importance of, of studying the Old Testament. And so as Jesus is addressing them, and he says, look, these things says, says the one who has the key of the house of David. Right. He's he's talking about his authority. And, and we see that that Jesus has the last say. That's what he's saying. He says, look, at he says, I can open doors that no one can, can, can open and that no one can close. And I can close doors that no one can open. You might think, oh, well, that's all, what's, what's all that about? Right. And so what he's, what he's referring to, what he's talking about is, you know, his authority over just everything. Uh, we see that Jesus has the last say. He is the ultimate authority. You know, and whatever he decides, no one can change that. No one can change that. And we should take comfort in that. Because if God has said something about your life, then it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what the, those people say. It doesn't matter what, man, what my record says. Hey, man, this is what God says about me. And he has the last word. Right. Growing up, uh, people would say, hey, man, I, I remember when I was in, in, in high school, my one year that I was there, uh, there used to be this, this, uh, this, Peru, this Peruvian girl that was there. And, uh, no, she was, she was a gypsy. 
right? And they had, they had just came to, to, to the U.S. and she was gypsy. And uh, I remember we were in class, you know, she, she used to read everyone's palm. And uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, condoning that. Um, of course, I, was, I, was, I didn't know anything back then. But anyway, we were in class and she would read everyone's palm. And uh, she's she like, here, let me see. She's like, I want to read your palm. I remember she would read my palm. And she's like, man, she's like, I don't see anything. Like, you got nothing going on for you. I'm like, are you serious? I'm like, here, check this one. You know, and she is to do her little thing, and she's like, she's like, man, she's like, you got nothing going on for you for your life. I'm like, and I'll tell man, I'd be like, oh, you're crazy, you don't know anything, whatever. I get all mad, right? And she would say that, and she would say, no, like, according to whatever your wrinkles, or whatever. She's like, she's like, you're not gonna amount to anything. You don't got nothing going on for you, nothing good, nothing evil either, but nothing good. You just got nothing going for you. Uh, and I would go, I'm like, yeah, whatever. You don't know what you're talking about, or, right? And but it's like. Society could, could put these, 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 these trips on us, you know, and, and they put these labels on us, and they think, look, you're going to amount to nothing, you're going to be nothing, you're going to, you know, never get out of here, you're never going to do anything, or you're never going to be successful, you're never going to whatever, right? But what God says about us is more important than, than what anybody else says about us, because we know that what God says about us, hey, nobody can change that. She said, hey, man, he opens doors, doors that no one can shut. He shuts doors that no one can open. He has the last say. He has, you know, he's the ultimate authority. You know, his word is bond, we would say, right? He has the last say, right? And so it doesn't matter what anyone has ever said about us, right? Hey, man, your parents could be the ones that come down on you, right? And my, my dad would tell me all kinds of crazy stuff. But yeah, whatever, whatever. And it's like, dude, we see that, that, that it's, it's what God says about us that really matters because he has the last say. And so... He goes on to, to address them and he says, I know your works. Right? He says, I know your works. He says, I know what you guys are all about. He says, I know that you have little strength, but you have kept my word and not denied my name. Now, this is important because this word that, that the Lord uses there for strength in the Greek is a word uh, dunamis. Right? Now, it, this, this Greek word dunamis, you know, it's defined as, as power that's consistent with the strength of an army. It's, it's also... Uh, this, this dynamic power is it's where we get our word dynamite from, right? This explosive type of power. And so Jesus is saying, I know your works, that you have little strength, that you have little dunamis, that you have little dynamite, that you have little explosive power. So you have a little bit of this. He says, but you have kept my word and not denied my name. Now, we see that, that, that though they only had a little bit of strength, you know, that little bit was, was real. It was, it was genuine, right? It was, it was powerful. And for us, I mean, sometimes we feel... Like, like that as the cares of the world begin to just drown us and just pile up on us heavy, right? You feel like, man, I'm walking just burdened, right? The cares of the world, my family, this, my job, all that, the other, the rent. And you just feel like you're just walking burdened, man, with all the cares of this world. And you feel like, man, that's me, right? I have a little bit of strength. I feel like I'm barely making it. I feel like just, you know, one more thing piled on top of me. That's it. I'm a crack. I'm going to lose it all, right? I'm going to snap. That's it, man. I'm going to give up, right? Sometimes we can feel like that. You know, we become so burdened and, and we feel weak physically, but even spiritually as well, right? And for this church, Jesus says, hey, look, I know you guys have only a little bit of strength, but that little bit of strength that you have is powerful. Now, we, feel like we, we may feel like we only have a little bit of strength, but Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. I love what he says. You know, as Paul was talking about his own strength, and this is Paul the Apostle, man, known as St. Paul, uh, the man who's been used, you know, more by God in the whole history of Beber. Right? There's, there, there's been no man on earth who God has used as mightily as the Apostle Paul to plant all kinds of churches, to preach the gospel to pretty much all of Asia Minor, right? to, to get the, the, the gospel down to Asia, to the rest of the world. And so Paul used, uh, the Lord used this guy, Paul, mightily. But he, he also suffered mightily. 
right? And he became weak, right? He, he had all kinds of physical and, 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 and things that were just, uh, uh, you know, weighing heavy on him. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. As he's praying, he starts praying to the Lord. He says, Lord, just take this away from me. Take this pain away from me. Take this burden away from me. And he says this. He says, but then God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast. Man, I'll, I'll, I'll gladly boast all the more gladly about my, my weakness. He says, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And so what that tells us is that in our moments of weakness, God sees it and wants to come in. You know, and he wants to be our strength. It's like, we're going to have those weak moments. Right? We're going to have those, those times where we feel like just giving up, tapping out. Like, I'm done, man. I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm tap out. Right? Those moments of weakness. But it, those moments of weakness, you know, God allows them to come into our life so that we could turn to him and allow him to be our strength. Right? And Paul said, hey, man, it's, it's in my weakest moments that I experience God's strength fully upon me. That's what he's saying. And so in our, moment, in our moments of weakness, you know, hey, God allows that so that he could be our strength. So we, we can experience him as our strength in those times. God wants to do it, man. He wants to take that burden off of you. He's not, he doesn't want you to continue walking with that burden, but he'll let you if you don't want to let it go. You know, but at the moment you say, Lord, I, say, I can't take it. Here, just take this. He'll gladly do it. He actually makes an invitation to us. There in the, in the Gospels, he says, he says, come to me, all you who are burdened, you know, and who are tired and who are heavenly burdened. He says, and I will give you rest. He makes an invitation. And he, and he identifies two groups of people, those who are tired and those who are heavily burdened. That's like all of us, for sure, right, at one point or another. And he says, hey, come to me, you know, come to me and, 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 you know, and just lay those burdens on me because I'll take them from you. Right? So the Lord wants us to, to not try to do this on our own, not try to walk this world on our own, but just to, man, lay our, lay our burdens on him. He'll take them, man. He, he's ready to, to receive them and as soon as we'll give them to him. So he continues to say there in verse 9, it says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Indeed, I will, make, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And he says, oh, we'll stop right there. And so he, man, this is kind of heavy. You know, he, he, so as he's addressing the church, and he says, hey, man, there's, there's those of the synagogue of Satan, right? He says, there's, there's those of the synagogue of Satan, you know, who, who say they are Jews, but are not. You know, they, they, they lie. And indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, right? And they're going to know that, that I love you. So what's this all about? He says, the synagogue of Satan. Well, apparently there were, there were Jews in Philadelphia uh, who were persecuting the Christian believers, when it talks about synagogue, you know, the only, ones, the only ones who had synagogues were the Jews. Still to this day. I mean, the, the Muslims have their mosques. You know, there's, there's other types of synagogues. But ideally, you know, the synagogue is, is talking specifically to the Jew. Keep in mind, you know, that, that, we're, that we're reading into a Jewish culture, Jewish context. Jesus was Jewish. John the Baptist was Jewish. All the early church, for the most part, were all Jews. And so, when we see that there in Philadelphia, there was a group of Jews there in Philadelphia who were persecuting the Christians. They were, they were killing these guys off, right? They were, uh, they were out to get them. And so Jesus says, hey man, he, he calls them out and he says, look, they're not a synagogue of God. They're not a synagogue. They're not my synagogue, but they're a synagogue of Satan. Why? Because if they were truly devoted to God, then they would recognize Jesus as a Messiah and they recognize these guys as their brothers. But instead, they're killing them off, right? They're, they're persecuting them. And so... They were persecuting the believers in the name of the Lord, but Jesus was going to make it clear that he didn't honor that. He's, man, these guys are doing it in the name of the Lord, and Jesus is going to show up and say, hey, man, I'm not even with you guys, man. I love those guys over there, the ones that you're, you're trying to kill. 
Those are my guys, man. Those are, those are my people, the ones that you're trying to kill. And so we see that Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to make a stand for, for this church, right? Make a stand for these believers. I love that. I love that because with so much injustice in the world, right? So many things that, man, you may feel like you get looked over at, at work or at home or at school or whatever. And you think, man, man no one's fighting on my behalf. But we could think that sometimes, right? We could feel like that sometimes. And it's like the Lord is saying, look, man, I'm going to make a stand for you. Right? That's awesome. I love that. And he says, because you have persevered, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Now, talking about this hour of trial now. This hour of trial that, that, that he's warning them about or he's saying that he's going to preserve them from is, uh, is actually uh, it's referring to, to a period of time that will come upon the world known as the tribulation period or the great tribulation period, which we're actually going to start reading a, 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 couple, a couple weeks from now. Right, and so it's describing a period that's going to come upon this earth at the last days. Uh, it's a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation period, in which, in which, uh, the righteousness of God is going to you know reign on the earth, you know, through His judgment. You know, so 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 God is going to judge the world. You know, His judgment is going to come upon the earth to cleanse it from sin and unrighteousness. And it's it's something that that has to happen, right? God being a just God, God being a righteous God. Uh, you know, the, the, you hear all these, all these questions. Well, if God exists, then why is there evil? Right? If God exists, then why do so many bad things happen? And it's not that God's going to let these things go on. There's a day that, that the whole world is going to be judged for its evil, for its wickedness, you know, for its sin. And, 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 and that day is actually uh, a seven-year tribulation period, right? Where God's judgment is going to come upon the earth to cleanse it from all unrighteousness. And so the Lord is telling this church, hey, if you persevere, says, I'm going to keep you from this hour of trial. Talking about the seven-year tribulation period. Now... Uh, where God's judgment will come upon the earth to cleanse it from sin. Uh, you know, it's like, all right, who's going to suffer? This? Who's going who's gonna to be affected by this? He says, those who dwell on the earth. And so those who dwell on the earth are, are the ones who are going to be affected by this. Now, this phrase right here, those who dwell on the earth, is, is a phrase that's used nine times in the book of Revelation. Uh, and each time that it's used in the book of Revelation, those who dwell on the earth, is referring to and is describing, you know, those people who rejected the Lord. Those people who rejected Christ and who got left behind, pretty much, right? And so we see that, that the non-believers, you know, it's, it's talking about the non-believers. Uh, so this is actually going to be a test for the non-believers, not the Christians. And so Jesus says, hey, look, keep persevering. He says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. And he goes on to say there in verse 11, it says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to, to what you have. It says that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so the Lord ends his address to them by saying, I'm coming quickly. He says, I'm coming quickly. He says, hold on to what you have. Now, this word quickly could better be described as, a, or better be translated as, as, a, as unexpectedly, unexpectedly, right? Not that, not quickly in a sense of time, because you may think, well, well this was written about 2,000 years ago, and he hasn't came, and he said, I was going to come quickly, and he hasn't came. So does that mean he's never going to come? But that word quickly actually means unexpectedly. So he, mean, he says, he says uh, I'm coming unexpectedly, I'm, I'm, I'm coming by surprise, right? He says, so hold on to what you have. And so the question is, well, what do they have? Remember in the beginning of the, of the study, you know, he, he said, hey, I know your works, that you have a little bit of strength. And so he's saying that, that little bit of strength that you have, he says, hold on to that. He says, hold on to that because I'm coming unexpectedly. Right? And you don't want to be caught off guard. He says, hold on to, to that little bit of strength that, that you have. He says, don't let go of it. You know, guard it. 
And for us today, you know, we might feel like, hey, man, that's all I have is a little strength. Right, Lord, I got nothing but just this little strength that I'm holding on to barely. Like this, like, oh, man, by the, my fingertips. Lord, this is all I have. I'm barely holding on to it. And you say, continue holding on to it. Hold on to it even tighter. He said, don't let it go. Right? It's like, and so we see that the Lord says the same thing to us. He just hold on to that little strength. Persevere. Persevere. Right? And then he, he gives them a promise. He says, to the one who overcomes, he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. What's that all about? Well, pillars are a symbol of strength. Right? You guys, uh, I'll see you know, a pillar, you're holding up a, you know, like we're surrounded by freeways. Those pillars that are holding up the freeways, they, they don't look that big, but man, when you're, when, you're, when you're up close to them, you're right next to them, you see like, man, you can't even put your arms around it. They're, 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 pretty, they're pretty thick, right? And uh, so we see that pillars are, are a symbol of strength, of stability, of support, everything that they needed, right? Everything that, that they lacked, no strength, no support, no stability. And Jesus says, hey, man, if you overcome, if you persevere, he says, I'm going to make you this pillar of strength, of stability, and support. Now, for them, you know, this would have been relevant because uh, the city of Philadelphia, that little region right there where they were at, uh, they had a lot of earthquakes. You know, more than California. You know, they had a lot of earthquakes. And just about every time they had an earthquake, the buildings would come down. And the only thing that would be left were, the, were these huge pillars. And so the Lord is addressing his church and he's saying, look, if you persevere, you're going to be like one of those pillars over there. You know, the ones that, that when the earthquake comes, the building falls down and it, only the pillars are left. And so they would have understood it right away. Like, oh man, for sure, we want to be like those, like those pillars, persevering through the trials, right? And for us as Christians, you know, when, when, the, when the trials come in our lives, hey, because they're going to come, when tribulations, when hardships, when the testing comes, it's like Jesus saying, hey, just persevere. Hold on to me. Hold on to my word. And I'm going to make you that, like that pillar. No matter, that no matter what comes upon you, because you're going to remain standing. I love that. I love that. Because, man, God is, is promising us the victory, right? And in those trials and those tests, he's, hey, man, just continue holding on to my word. And so we see that Jesus offers the same type of strength to us, to those who trust in him. You know, the strength to remain standing when trials or hard times come. And so he goes on to say there... Uh, and verse 14, now as he's going to address another church, you know, apart from, from the, the church there in Laodicea, he's going to address another church, which uh, we, we know as the lukewarm church. And it's a church in the city of, of uh, Laodicea. And so it says this in verse 14, this is, and to the church, and sorry, and to the angel of the church of, La of the Laodiceans write and say, these things says the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of creation of God. He says, I know your works. That you're neither hot or cold. He says, I wish you were hot or cold. He says, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's heavy. He says, because you say, I am rich, uh, you've become wealthy and have, not, have need of nothing. And do not know that you are actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. <laughs> we'll stop right there. And so now he's addressing another church in another city, uh, a city known as Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was known throughout the Roman province of Asia for its wealth. These guys were filthy rich. I mean, they had uh, natural resources in abundance. They, they, were, they were just filthy rich. Uh, they, were, they were wealthy. Um, it was, it was, a, it was a, a commercial type of city. You know, a lot of transport, a lot of exporting, just a lot of business going on here in Laodicea. And so it was actually known for its, its medical practices as, as well. Like all those doctors would go study there at Laodicea. It was known for its awesome hospitals. They had the best surgeons, all that stuff, you know. So they, they, were, they were well off. That's what I'm trying to say. And it was actually the banking center of Asia. Uh, 
it was the most prosperous of the seven cities, you know, that, that we just that we read about in chapter two and three. These were like financially, these guys, like, like, this is where it was at. You know, they were prospering like hardcore. Now, uh, history tells us that after an earthquake uh, destroyed that region in AD sixty, the uh, the Laodiceans, the, the city of Laodicea, actually refused help from the government and they built the city with their own resources. You know, so you know the the, the government, all the other cities surrounding them, were, came and they were they're trying. They're trying to send them help. They're trying to send them aid, and, and they re, they rejected it because they were just so self-sufficient that re, they rejected help from any anyone else. Right? They're, they're like, no, we're gonna build our own city. We you know we have all the resources. We're gonna do this on our own. We don't need help from anyone else. And they did. They actually rebuilt the city of Laodicea after that huge earthquake in AD 60. And so we see that they relied on their own resources to get them through. Now, one thing that that they were missing though was a good water supply. Like the, if they were lacking anything in this awesome, prosperous city, they, it, it was was a good water supply. Keep in mind that you know they couldn't go to Walmart and buy a forty pack of waters, or you know, or have the sparkless guy stop by their house and you know fill up the gallons. They had to pump the pump the water from a from a from a well. You know, they had to dig a well, excavate, or or, or have a, a natural river running through the city. Right? It wasn't like like today. And so the one thing that that, that they lacked was a good water supply. It was a good water source. Uh, so they lacked natural flowing water in the city, and we'll get into that a little bit a little bit later. And so the Lord is addressing them, you know, and He says, "Hey, I know your works. He says that, that you're neither hot nor you're cold. He says you're lukewarm. You're right in the middle, right? You're lukewarm." He says, "Therefore, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will vomit you out of my mouth." That's like very hardcore, like illustrative language. Saying the Lord is saying, "Hey, I'm gonna take this church and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth." That's heavy, man. That's like heavy condemnation then to the church. Right? I mean, that's something I don't want to hear from the Lord. Here I am serving God. And man, I imagine myself hearing that from Jesus. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Like, no way, Lord. That's, ouch, that hurts. Right? But so what does this mean? So the Christians at Laodicea, you know, were, were, he, were hearing this. You know, as they heard the Lord, the Lord speak this to them. As they heard the Lord say, hey, you're, you're not cold. You're not hot. You're right in the middle. You look warm. So I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. For the, for the Christians there in the city of, La- of Laodicea, they would have understood this immediately. Why? Because... For them, again, since they lack this, this natural water, since they lack this, this good uh, uh, water resource, um, their water actually traveled several miles through an underground duct before reaching the city. And so when, they, when the water finally got to, to, to the city through this, to this underground pipe, you could call it, um, it, it got to the city, it was, it was filthy, it was, it was smelly, it was foul, it was warm, uh, it wasn't hot enough to, to, to relax in like a hot spring, but it wasn't cool enough to drink and refresh yourself. So it was pretty much worthless. You know? And so it, w- it wasn't uncommon for a traveler who was passing through the city of Laodicea to stop and get a drink of water and then spit it out because it was just, the, the quality of it was just horrible. Right? And so and they, they knew it. I mean, it's something that, 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 that they knew, right? It's like, you know certain things about certain cities. Like if you go to like Ontario, certain parts of Ontario, call it Cowtown, you know, you start driving through all the streets and oh, it smells like manure. So, you know, that's what, it's, that's what it's known for. Right? You start driving through certain cities uh, and it's like, you know, city, certain cities are known for certain things. This city, Laodicea, was known for their disgusting water. You know, you knew if you were thirsty, I mean, I'd rather just keep on walking past Laodicea and, and go get water somewhere else because it was so nasty, right? It, it had to come from, a, from a, a, an underground tunnel, super far away, a few, several miles, by the time I got to the city, it was it was undrinkable. It was useless, pretty much, right? And so the, their their water was pretty much useless. And it was, and so it's it's like out of all the seven churches, you know, that we just read about, uh, that were mentioned, we see that this church was actually in the worst condition. 
There's not one good thing that the Lord says to, to commend them. You know, and so in that sense, in saying, hey, look, you're neither hot, you're not cold. I'm going to spit you out of, out of my mouth. It's like, it's like the Lord is, is, is telling them. He's saying, uh, because you're neither hot or cold, he says, you're useless. <laughs> so he's saying, man, you're useless just like your water. That's heavy, man. That's some heavy things to hear from, from God. Hey, man, you're useless just like your water. Dude, that, that, that's hardcore, right? But the reason why he says this is because, uh, you know, he, he's relating their water to their spiritual life. He say, man, look, he says, your spiritual life is like that water that you have in the city, right? It's neither, it's not good for, 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 for cooking. It's not good for, 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 for drinking. It's not good for refreshing. He says, it's too hot to, to do anything. It's, it's, it's not hot enough to do anything with. It's not cold enough to do anything with. It's right in the middle, so it's useless. It's only good for being thrown out. And so these guys were actually playing the middle. You know, they were neither fully committed to God or fully committed to their sin. It's like they were right in the middle. You know, we would say they're, they're riding the fence. Right? And when, when, I don't know if you guys ever heard that expression or, you know, before, but when we say, hey, you're riding the fence, think of a chain link fence. So you're trying to jump the fence and it's all wobbly, like, oh, oh, right, you're going this way, you're going that way before you can finally jump over. And so these guys were just riding the fence, they're right in the middle, right? They're neither hot nor cold, they're right in the middle. And so Jesus is saying, hey, man, your spiritual walk is just, it's useless. I can't do anything with you because you're not on fire for me and you're not just completely, you know, apart from me. You're just right down the middle. You're not committed to either, either side. That's heavy. So they were trying to do both things. And in them trying to, to do both things, they ended up being nothing. Crazy. And so we see that the church of, La- of Laodicea was, was pretty much fooling themselves, right? In their minds, they were spiritually rich. They were spiritually wealthy. They didn't need anything. But in reality, you know, spiritually, they were miserable, the Lord says. They were miserable. They were poor. They were blind. And they were naked. And what a deception. What a deception. I mean, what a contrast between what they, what they thought they were and what they really were. And, and I say that because, man, we could think like that about ourselves sometimes too. I think, I'm good, man. I don't need God. I'm good. Or if you're walking with God, I think, oh, man, I'm good. My walk with the Lord is, is good. But, yeah, you know, you're, you're looking at it from right here, right? And someone looking from the outside in, you think, man, that guy's walk is crazy. That guy's walk is lousy, right? He's useless. That person is useless. Like, man, God seeing from the outside looking in or someone else looking at your life from the outside. It's like, what, is, what do other people say about your walk with the Lord? Right? But we could think, we could go about this life and think, man, I'm good with the Lord. Right? I don't need God. I'm, I'm good right now. And yet you don't realize that spiritually you're miserable, you're poor, you're, you're famished, you're famished, you're impoverished, and you're naked spiritually. Right? I like what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. You know, he's giving kind of a warning to, to, the, to the believers. And he says, he says, so if if you think you're standing firm, he says, hey, be careful. Be careful that you don't fall. Right? Because we could easily deceive ourselves and think, nah, I'm good, man. I don't need that. I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm making it happen on my own. You're right. I'm, I'm making it happen. I'm good. Right? And it's when, we, it's when we begin to get too comfortable in our own strength, you know, that, that we fall. Right? So it goes on to say there in verse 18, he says, I counsel you. Now he says, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and, and white garments, and that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, or correct. Therefore be zealous and repent. And so now he tells them, you know, he doesn't just leave them, he doesn't just man, throw this truth bomb on them and say, all right, man, deal with it. No, he gives them instructions on how to fix it. So what should they do? Jesus says, hey man, he says, he says, buy from me. He says, buy from me gold refined in the fire. Now, Jesus isn't literally trying to you know, sell them gold. But what, what he's saying is, you know, is that they had been so used to, to, to relying on their own strength, on their own resources, and, 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 and their own, they're so confident in themselves 
that they became spiritually impoverished. And so Jesus is saying, hey, look, uh, come to me to find all those things, right? Receive from me. Stop looking for these things, for your strength and all these outside things. So they come to me. You know, come to me and, really, and be really spiritually rich. And he goes on to say, as many as I rebuke, I love or, or correct. Or as many as I correct, I love. Now, if you feel challenged this morning, right? If you, even if you feel rebuked or if you feel corrected or you feel like, man, you know, that's kind of harsh. Ouch. Right? Then... then it's, it's not that the Lord is trying to condemn you. It's not that the Lord is trying to come down on you, right? It's not that he's trying to, you know, man, make you see how miserable and lousy you are. No, God's intention is never that. You know, but he tells us right here and he tells us other places in the Bible that, that whom God loves, he corrects. It's like a father and his child, right? A good father and his child, right? Man, you see your kid running to the middle of the street, you're going to grab him by the t-shirt, you're going to spank him and you say, you better not ever do that ever in your life again. Why? Because you love that kid, right? And, and you you rather they suffer a little bit of pain in that moment but and, and not be killed or not suffer any worse pain doing it later on in life, right? And so you're saving them a, a life's hardship by, by punishing them or by correcting them in that moment. And so, Jesus, and so Jesus is saying, hey, whom I love, I correct just like that father corrects a child, right? Maybe painful at the moment but yeah, I'm spraying them, I'm saving them from a lifetime of misery, and so if you feel corrected, if you feel rebuked, if you feel kind of, you know, spanked a little this morning by the Lord, it's because He loves you, man. It's because you're His kid and, and, and He loves you, right? And He wants to correct your wife so that, he could, uh, exp- so that you could experience this intimate fellowship with Him. And so he, the last verse is verse 20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him or eat with him and he with me. It says, to him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And verse 22 says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus ends his address to the church by kind of just giving them an, an exhortation, right? A word of encouragement. And, and he says, hey man, look, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. He says, everyone, if anyone hears my voice, if anyone hears me knocking and opens the door, he says, I'm going to come in and, and, and I'm going I'm to eat with them. Right? He says that he's going to eat with me. And so what's that all about? And now in the, in the Jewish context, in the Jewish culture, uh, sharing a meal with somebody is like the most intimate thing you could do with somebody. Because they didn't use spoons and forks and, and, and all these things. You know, they had bowls that they shared and they grabbed the bread and everyone was kind of dipping their hand in there. Right? So it's like you're becoming one with the person as you're eating with that person. You're having this fellowship. You're, you're becoming one. And so Jesus says, hey man, to whoever hears me knocking and opens that door, he says, we're going to come in, we're going to sit down for a meal, we're going to become one, right? We're going to have that relationship. But notice what Jesus says. He says, I stand outside and I knock. And he, keep in mind, he's talking to a church. He says, hey, I stand outside the church and I'm knocking and trying to get inside this church. That's crazy. Jesus should be inside the church, right? We should be knocking, trying to come inside. Lord, let me be with you. But instead he's addressing this church and, and he's asking them permission to come inside. And that's heavy, that's heavy because, man, if, if a church doesn't have the Lord dwelling in the church, then it's not a church, right? It's just a building, it's just a social program, it's just a social get-together, right? And so Jesus is here, is here he's knocking at the door of the church, and he's saying, hey, man, if you let me in, he's all come in, man, I'll, I'll fellowship with you guys. He's like, we'll, we'll get together, man, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll have intimate relationship, you know, we'll, we'll have fellowship, we'll get to know one another. He says, you know, you'll, you'll know me on a, on a deeper level, right? And so... As he's knocking on this door of the church, asking you to come in, notice that he didn't force himself in. Notice that he didn't grab a chair and smash the window open and climb into the window. Notice that he didn't get a, 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 a crowbar and, and, and pry open the door. And notice he didn't kick in the door and come in. Hey, man, this is my church. I, you know, I have a right to be here. No. But he knocked. He said, hey, if you open the door, I'll come in. And 
Just like he was, just like he was knocking on this on the on the door of this church and asking to come in and asking to get invited in. He knocks on the doors of our lives. He knocks on the doors of this little home right here, of this of this little house right here, our hearts. And he says, "Hey, man, if you if you hear me knocking on your door, and, and if you open that door and you and you invite me to come in, he says, I'm gonna come in with you. He says, I I won't be one with you. I'm gonna have fellowship with you, right? And really, that's what the Lord is desiring to do. He's never gonna force himself upon you, right? You can hear about God your whole life, and God's never gonna force himself upon you." But he will give you the opportunity to just open the door and say, Lord, you just come into this home. Come into this heart. Dwell on this heart. Dwell on, dwell on this house you know, and, my, and my body. Just take over, Lord. Right? And, and that's what he's desiring to do. There's this little book about, it's like literally like this size, maybe like three or four pages. It's called uh, my, my, my Heart, Christ's Home. And so the author in it, uh, he describes his, his, his heart as like, he's talking about it as like a house. Right? And he talks about when, when he invited Jesus into his heart. And he says... He says, uh, uh, he says, I heard the, the Lord knocking at the door of my, of, of my, of my, of my home. He says, I opened the door and, and the Lord came in and he asked if he could be the Lord of the living room. And he said, yeah, Lord, you can be the Lord of the living room. And then he dwelled there for a while and then he said, hey, can I be the Lord of the kitchen? He said, yeah, you can be the Lord of the kitchen. And he says, little by little, he says, then he went to one of the bedrooms. He says, can I be the Lord of this bedroom? He says, yeah, Lord, you can be the Lord of this bedroom. He says, what about this room? He says, yeah, Lord. You can be the Lord of that room too. And, and so this guy, as he's describing this, you know, he's saying little by little, he started, you know, as Jesus is knocking the door, he's letting him be Lord of, of, of the home, you know, little by little of all of it. And then it gets to a point where in the book where, where uh, Jesus is Lord of like 98% of the house. He says, but there was one, there, there was one room. It was a little closet, like a little two by two closet, a little tiny closet that was there in, in one of the rooms there in the corner. Right? And then Jesus said, hey, can I be Lord of that little two by two closet right there? And the guy's like, no, no way, Lord. He says, he says, you don't want to go in there. He says, you don't want to see what I have in there. And, and Jesus says, if you let me go in there, he says, I'll clean it up for you. He says, I'll go in there. I'll pick up all the mess. I'll clean it up for you. All right, I'll, I'll make it nice and tidy. I'll put some light in there. Again, talking about his heart. And the guy's like, no, he says, trust me. You don't, you don't, want, to, you don't want to go in there because you don't want to see what I've been keeping in there. And then uh, finally the Lord says, if you let me in, I'll come in, but I'm not going to force you. And the guy ends up saying, all right, Lord. He says, you could, you could, you could be Lord of that little dark closet too, but... You're not going to be happy with what you find. Right, and then the story goes on to, to say, you know, that, that the Lord went into the little closet. He cleaned it up for him. You know, he cleaned it up. He tied it up. He put some light in there. He threw all the other stuff out, you know, and, and he became Lord of the whole house. And so really, you know, when we come to the Lord, you know, God is desiring that we surrender everything to him. Right? We could be Christians. You could be walking with the Lord and you could still have areas of your life like that little closet, little two by two closet. You think, man, who cares about that little corner? Lord, let me keep that little corner so I can stash on my... Whatever. Or let me just have that. And Jesus said, no, man, I, I want to be Lord of that little dark corner too that no one knows about. Right? And, and sometimes we come to the Lord and we just, we keep those things behind. We're like, Lord, you have 99% of my life. You have 99.9% .9 of my life. Let me just keep that 1%, 0.1%. And Jesus says, hey, man, I want it all. He says, let me be Lord of, Lord of all so you can experience me fully. Right? And so as he's knocking on the door of this church, he knocks on, on the doors of our hearts this morning as well. And, and, and the Lord is saying the same thing. He says, if you let me in, he says, I'll come in. He says, and, and, and I'll have fellowship with you, right? I'll be one with you, right? And with that, I want to end this morning.